Please turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. At some point in time, every believer struggles with doubt. Sometimes it's just a little cloud of doubt that comes and then passes. Sometimes it's a really dark cloud that comes and stays. And when those dark clouds come, sometimes we're really tempted to feel guilty. If I really believed, I wouldn't struggle with doubt. We feel really isolated. I doubt anyone around me is struggling with doubt like I'm struggling with doubt. We need to remember that doubt is not sin. Disbelief is sin. But doubt is not sin. Philip Yancey wrote in one of his books, Doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is. Not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. Those who honestly confront their doubts often find themselves growing into a faith that transcends the doubts. Doubt is an opportunity for us to grow, to count it all joy and to see God flesh out our faith, to strengthen us in our faith. Because every single one of us will struggle with doubt from time to time. Remember when I was uh, late in high school, early into college, I began to ask myself, uh, do I really believe for myself? Or is this just my parents' faith that I inherited? I was born into a Christian home, and so I'm a Christian. Or is there any validity for my faith? Can I trust that this is true? What if I had been born in a country in which no one knew about Jesus Christ? Would I still be a Christian? And I began to examine my faith and I dug deep and I listened to all the skeptics of Christianity and I looked at creation and evolution and I looked at issues of the validity of the Bible and in particular, I looked at the issue of the resurrection. Because as I began to search, I realized this is the central issue. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then there is no faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, our faith is in vain. It's worthless. There is no hope unless Christ was raised from the dead. And the more that I examined it, the more confident that I became that the greatest explanation for the gospel accounts is that Jesus Christ did actually live and die and he actually was raised from the dead. He did make a payment for my sin so that I can have the hope of eternal life. And my confidence grew. God put flesh on those bones of faith for me. And that wasn't the end of the story. Satan would come back periodically and he'd begin to stir up those doubts again. But every time that he did, I was able to go back to those deep grooves that I had carved in my mind and in my heart and I would say once again no there's validity for my faith there's a reason that I believe and I suspect that most of you are here this morning got out of bed on a Sunday morning on Easter when you could have slept in and actually dressed up I found a suit in the back of my closet thanks I'll wear it more often 
You came because you believe and you wanted to worship. Maybe some of you came with doubts. Maybe some of you came and you've never believed before. But you came with family or friends. Or maybe you came just because you're curious and you have doubts. Where do those doubts come from? And how do we deal with them when they do come? I want you to look with me again in John chapter 7 and verse 19. Excuse me. You were right where you needed to be. Luke chapter 7 verse 19. Turn, turn, turn. You're going to be in John in just a second, so. Luke 7 verse 19. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? If anyone shouldn't have doubted, it should have been John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist had plenty of evidence. I'm kind of comforted. I'm surprised that John doubted, but I'm comforted that John the Baptist also struggled with doubt. Why did he struggle with doubt? Well, because life was not turning out as he expected it to turn out. John had a plan and life wasn't working out according to John's plans. In spite of all of the evidence that John had, he still struggled with doubt. Now, keep your place here in Luke 7 and turn to Luke chapter 3 and verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound like a man who had doubt? No, he was born under the prophetic word. His parents were told, You will have a son, and he will be the forerunner to God's Messiah. In the spirit and power of Elijah, he will be the one who fulfills these prophecies of Isaiah chapter 40. And John, in fulfillment of these prophecies, goes out into the wilderness and he begins to preach and people are drawn to him. And he announces, God's Messiah is about to come. And I'm going to lay the foundation. I'm going to smooth the pathway because I'm going to call you to repentance so that you're ready, so that you can see who God's Messiah is when he actually comes. Your eyes will be opened. Keep your place here now in Luke chapter 3 and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 25. Some messengers from the Pharisees asked John. They said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ or the Messiah, nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, 
but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and I have testified, this is the son of God. I wasn't exactly sure who it would be, but God spoke to me. John was one of those rare individuals who heard a voice, and he wasn't crazy. It was God's voice in his head speaking to him. And he said, I'm going to send my spirit, and when I send my spirit, it will come down out of heaven, and it will remain upon one. That's my son. That's the anointed one. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. Point people to him. John baptized Jesus. Jesus came up out of the water. The spirit descended And a voice came out of heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John said, this is the guy. And he told his disciples, his followers, follow him. He's the Messiah. Does that sound like a man with doubt? No, he was confident. He was giving his life, pointing people to God's Messiah, God's King. And yet now we find John struggling with doubt. Why is that? Because life hadn't turned out as John had expected. He was the forerunner to the king. And as the forerunner to the king, he might have expected that he would have a place of prominence, a place of blessing. Instead, he finds himself imprisoned. He's the forerunner to the king. He's been announcing God's king is going to come and he's going to wipe out all of his enemies and establish his kingdom. But God's enemies are not being wiped out. They're just fine. They're just fine. Instead, God's enemies apparently have triumphed over God's forerunner, and God's forerunner is languishing in prison. He's cold, he's lonely, he's hungry, and he wonders, what's going on? This is not what I expected. And so he sends some of his followers who are still with him to Jesus and say, just ask him, did I get it right? Are you the one who's coming? Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Or should I look for someone else? What did they come back and report to John? Turn back to Luke chapter 7 with me again. Verse 18 says, The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. What, What are all these things? What did they tell John? Look up just a little bit at verse 11, chapter 7. Luke records this story for us. It says, Soon afterwards, He went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, do not weep. And he came up, and he touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Wow. (laughs) Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. And John's disciples came and said, this is what's going on. The dead are being raised. And John says, could you find out if he's really the one? 
And so they go to Jesus. And what Jesus does is he performs a whole bunch more miracles right in front of him. It says many more people had demons cast out and many more people had their sight restored and many more lame walked and left for joy. And many diseases were healed. Miracle, 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 miracle. Watch this, John's disciples. Okay, now go back and tell John again. See if you can convince him. And notice what he sends them with. This is the message, verse 22. He answered and said to them, Now go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Give John the evidence. Give John the evidence. Give him your direct report of what you have just seen and what you have heard about. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Blessed is he who doesn't get tripped up over me. The point is that even if you hear about the dead being raised, if Jesus isn't performing as you expect him to perform, you won't believe. Because faith doesn't operate in the realm of proof. It operates in the realm of evidence. We have a valid reason for our faith, but not necessarily proof. John is wrestling, even though he's heard about the dead being raised, he's still struggling. Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Because life is not turning out for him personally as he had expected life to turn out. And so Jesus points him to the evidence. He says, look at this. And then Jesus points him back to Scripture. And he quotes a couple little pieces of prophecies from Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy when God sends his Messiah. This is what's going to happen in John. This is what's happening. And this is what God predicted in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 26, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. The dead man rose up and what did he do? He spoke. I bet he was happy. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. This is what's happening, John. Most specifically, he probably was referring to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, that is, upon the Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. John, that's what's happening. And even John's own life had been predicted right in the middle of this. Isaiah chapter 40, I will send a forerunner. And John knew his place in God's salvation history. He was the forerunner. So he knew this entire portion of scripture. He also knew that Isaiah 61 verse 2 didn't end right here. It ended like this. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But that wasn't why Jesus came the first time. But that's what John was expecting and hoping for. God, use your Messiah to crush Rome and get rid of all these hypocritical religious leaders. But God hadn't revealed everything to John. He'd only revealed a little bit to John. And so John's expectations were not being fulfilled. God hasn't revealed all of his plan to us either, has he? Mm -mm. And sometimes we don't even know we have these expectations until they're not fulfilled. 
Life isn't turning out as we anticipated, and we're confronted with the challenge, do we trust God, or do we trust what we see with our eyes? God is using these unexpected circumstances that are not always pleasant to stretch our faith, to stretch us. Will we really really trust in God? That he is real, that he is good, that he does care. He is concerned, and he's paying attention for all of our needs. Sometimes we doubt because things don't turn out for us as we want them to turn out, as we expected them to turn out. Sometimes doubt comes from spiritual attack. Satan wants to undermine your confidence in God. Because if he can take out your confidence in God, he takes out all the power of your worship. You can't sing loudly and praise to God, God, I trust you, you're good, I think. <laughs> He's going to undermine your witness. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's my savior. He gives me eternal life. I think the power of our worship, the power of our witness is undermined when we come under spiritual attack and Satan causes us to doubt the goodness of God, the power of God, maybe even the existence of God. But I'm encouraged that if you look at the great characters of faith in the Bible, all of them came under this attack and all of them struggled at times with doubting God. God, are you really in control? God, are you really good? Moses is a great example of this. Pillar of the faith, central figure in the Bible, leads the nation of Israel out of captivity from Egypt across the Red Sea as it parts, takes them into the wilderness, prepares to bring them into the promised land. But then as they get to the promised land, they back off, they fail. And God says, this generation is going to die off. Moses, I just changed your job. You're going to take them on a death march for 40 years. And they grumble and they whine and they complain. And Moses is like, that's not what I signed up for. You know, when I met you at the burning bush and all that, I had great expectations. What was going to happen? It's not working out. So what does Moses say to God? Numbers chapter 11, Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? You ever prayed that to God before? (laughs) You're beating me down, God. Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of this people on me? So if you're going to deal thus with me, just get it over with. (laughs) Kill me at once. I'm through. David wrestled. With God. God, where are you? Are you real? Are you powerful? Are you going to take care of me? My enemies surround me. Saul is chasing after me to kill me. And I thought that you said that I would be king. And now that I'm king, all of the enemies are attacking Israel, the Amalekites and the Philistines. All of my life is war, war, war. God, where are you? And he cried out to the Lord, Psalm chapter 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Have you prayed that to the Lord? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? God, I'd like to have a good answer for them. Where are you, God? Elijah wrestled with this. After doing battle with the prophets of Baal and winning, an incredible spiritual victory, Jezebel says, I'm going to to kill you, Elijah, and he runs And he's afraid and he's depressed and he hides in a rock. And he says, God, if you're going to treat me like this, just get it over with. Put me to death. Are you really powerful? Are you really there? Do you really care? 
Sometimes it's spiritual attack. Circumstances are not turning out as we anticipated and Satan is coming after us and he's stirring up doubt within us. Will we believe God's word that he really is good? He really is true. He really is in control. Will we trust him in spite of what we see with our eyes? It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for God to put flesh on the bones of faith so that we count it all joy. God is teaching us endurance. He is building character for us so that people watch us struggle with the same things they struggle with and they say, there's something different in that person's life. They've got a strength and a power and a confidence that transcends all of their circumstances. How do they do it? And we can say, Jesus, with confidence. Third reason that we struggle with doubt Moral inconsistencies. I've talked to so many friends who say, the reason that I don't go to church, the reason I don't want to be associated with Christians is because there are so many Christians who are so hypocritical. They live just like everyone else. I say, yeah, you're right. It's hard to avoid a day in the news where there isn't a Christian who has committed some immorality or unethical behavior or illegal behavior, who names the name of Christ but doesn't live any differently from the world. Yeah, that's true. It's so true. And it's, it's agony for us who walk with the Lord to see that. But you know what? It's true in every profession. There are those who are the genuine article and those who are not whether it's medicine or law or car sales or education. Some who are ethical and unethical, some who do it well and some who don't do it well. But if I'm really, really sick, in spite of the fact that not all doctors are great, I'm going to go find a great doctor. I'm going to find the real thing, the genuine article, because I know it exists. When I was in high school, I had an opportunity to go and work at a Young Life camp for a month and uh, when I got selected to go and work at this camp, I, I felt really uh, uh, insecure. I didn't tell anybody about it, but I thought, you know, I'm going to get up there and everyone who's working at this camp is going to be so spiritual. And then there'll be me. I'm just going gonna, gonna to stick out like a sore spiritual thumb. Man, look at that guy. He doesn't belong. And you know, it was so disappointing. I got up there and everyone was just like me. <laughs> it was so disappointing. But there were a few who really did stand out. They they really, they were a step or two ahead of me with the Lord. And it was so appealing and so inviting. I thought, I want to be like that. I want to imitate that. Because that's the genuine article. And sometimes it's not just the moral inconsistencies that we see out there in the world, the hypocrisy that we see in others, wherever they may be. The hypocrisy that we see in ourselves, the, the, the inconsistencies that we see in ourselves sometimes cause us to doubt. If I really believed, if I really trusted, then I wouldn't be struggling over and over and over again with exactly the same things. God, forgive me for that. Forgive me again for that and again. And it's an opportunity for us to be reminded, to take advantage of the fact that our great high priest stands always before the throne of God. And every time we bring that same sin back, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins because he paid for it on the cross and he welcomes us back into fellowship. But when we're caused to doubt, 
does he still want to hear my confession? Does he still want to listen to my prayer? We're caused to doubt and we pull back. It's a lie of Satan and we don't go confess. And that sin sits and it festers. And you know what happens? It causes doubt. Begins to stir up doubt within us. Fourth area where we have doubt is intellectual challenges to our faith. But I have noticed in most cases, our doubts don't start as intellectual issues. They usually start as a moral issue. God convicts us of an area of sin in our lives and either from fear, will God listen to me again? Or from pride, we don't confess, we don't repent, there's no change. And God, Satan uses that moral inconsistency in our life to open a door. Satan uses that. He opens a door and he comes in and he begins to dig a little deeper at intellectual issues, doubts about our faith whether it's creation and evolution, reliability of the Bible, or the resurrection itself. And we begin to doubt. When Tristy and I were first married, we, um, we uh, saved up our pennies and we took a trip over to Europe. I wanted her to see where I had gotten to live in Prague. And so we went to Prague and we went to a bunch of other cities and went through Salzburg. And we got to Salzburg and we looked around and we thought, well, what, what can you do in Salzburg? You know, what, what can we go see? And so we saw a little flyer for the Sound of Music tour. Sound of Music. Anybody remember that? Signed up for the Sound of Music tour because the hills were alive for the Sound of Music. And uh, we were the only ones who signed up. So it was us in a big van with Horst, our guide. And uh, Horst said, well, you know, since you're the only ones on the tour, I'll show you anything you want. You know, I'll show you, you know, uh, Maria's church or, you know, whatever. I'll show you anything you want to see or other stuff, whatever. We got lots of time. So we drove all around. He showed us extra stuff. It was really cool. And we got in a lot of really good conversations because it was just the two of us and Horst. We're walking into the church where they got married. As we're walking in, Horst turns to me and he says, you know, uh, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had a lot of kids. Uh, really? I really, I wasn't aware of that. Where, where did you learn that, Horst? And he said, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, I, I've known students who have, have heard that attack. Came up again with Da Vinci Code. Right, similar idea. I've, heard, I've known students, who, they've heard that. And it's, it's rattled their faith. Maybe Jesus was married. Maybe he did have children. Maybe all this thing is just a big myth. Maybe it's a lie. But... In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls were completed almost 200 years before Jesus was even born. Dead Sea Scrolls say nothing about Jesus. I know that. I was ready to give a defense for my faith. I was prepared. And when those attacks come, we need to be prepared. We need to be able to give evidence. We need to be able to give evidence for the resurrection in particular. Is it valid? Are these gospel accounts valid? Do we have a reason for our faith so that when Satan attacks us with these things, we can with gentleness and respect for others say, this is what I know is true. Because there's evidence for our faith. But the evidence won't put us over the top. Okay? In spite of all the evidence, sometimes we still wrestle with doubt. Why is that? Well, I think fundamentally it's because we expect things from God that God has not promised for us. Our expectations are not in line with what God has promised. What do we expect from God? Well, first of all, we would like proof. We would like proof, not proof beyond a shadow of a doubt, but proof beyond doubt. 
Proof beyond the possibility of a doubt. And that's just basic human nature. We want God to prove himself, and we feel like we have the right to demand proof from God. The thieves, who were hanging on crosses next to Jesus, felt that they had a right to say to Jesus, prove yourself. Prove yourself. If you're really the son of God, get down from the cross, and while you're at it, get us down too. Prove in our fleeting lives that you're really God. The Roman soldiers joined in and they said, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross and prove it. The Pharisees and religious leaders joined in that and they said, just give us one more big miracle and then we'll believe. Come down off the cross and prove that you're God's Messiah, then we'll believe. Give us proof. You know what? He didn't come down off the cross, but he did come out of the grave and they still didn't believe. And the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb was that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, but they still didn't believe. There's something in us. We don't really want to walk by faith. We want to walk by sight. You know, someday there will be sight. Someday every eye will see Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Someday he will prove it, but not yet. Right now he's training his people to walk by faith. We expect from God or want from God or demand from God proof. We also would like perfection right now. We don't want to wrestle. We don't want to struggle with temptation and sin, and we don't want to struggle with the trials that come in this life and uh, illnesses and cancer and, and the grief of death. And, and we, we don't want to wrestle with those things. We want the kingdom now. We're so impatient, but that's not what God has promised us. What has he promised us? Well, First and fundamentally, he's promised us that we will have permanent forgiveness if we believe in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He can save forever because the death that he died to sin, he died once and for all. He doesn't die time after time after time. He died once and for all. And when he did so, he paid for all sin for all time. And now he lives forever. Death no longer can touch him. He lives forever in the very presence of the Father, always making intercession for us. So the moment that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that debt is permanently removed. And every time there is a sin or a failure in your life, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord and say, restore that fellowship, Jesus, please. And he says, of course, I already paid for it. And you believe I can save you forever. I will save you forever. Eternal life is secure. That is the promise that God gives to us. Permanent forgiveness. What comes with that is that we will have perfection forever. Not yet, but someday We will have perfection. Our bodies will not wear out and grow old. We will have a glorified body that is just like the body of Jesus Christ. It's not subject any longer even to temptation or sin. We will not struggle. Now what we view through a glass dimly, as Paul says, we will actually see. We will see him face to face. We will see Jesus. What we now live by faith, what we experience by faith, someday will be sight. We will see Jesus. All that we've hoped for will be actualized, just not yet. But what he promises us today is the strength to endure in the midst of all of these trials. And you know, that's what he longs for from his people. 
He doesn't rescue us from the normal struggles of life in a broken world. He leaves us in the same world with everyone else who doesn't believe in him so that they can see how we walk by faith and not by sight. And as they observe that, they'll be pointed to Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have in his resurrection, not the hope that we place in this world. And so my my question for you this morning is very simply, do you trust him? If you've never trusted in him for that very first time and said, Jesus, thank you. I believe that you died for my sins. Thank you for purchasing with your sacrifice eternal life for me. I encourage you, tell him this morning. Tell him, I trust you, Jesus. The moment that you do that, you possess eternal life. You can't earn it through your good works, through coming to church on Easter, through baptism, through service in the community. There's nothing that we can do that's worthy of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. We receive it as a free gift. The moment that we do, we're saved forever. And because we didn't earn it, we can't lose it. And I would encourage you, make that decision if you have never made it before. If you have made that decision, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but maybe even this morning you're struggling with doubts. Ask God to examine your heart. Why? Why are you wrestling? Life is not turning out as you anticipated. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, ask him to examine our hearts, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess our confidence in you because you gave us Jesus and because you raised him from the dead. We walk by faith, not by sight. We trust what you have revealed. And though you haven't given us proof, we're confident because you've given us evidence for our faith. Faith is not a blind leap confess that you are trustworthy. Father, we thank you that Jesus saves. Thank you that our hope is in him. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. The tomb is empty and we rejoice this morning in that. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. He is risen. God bless you. Have a great week.